Welcome to What the Hex, your source for Warhammer Underworlds and under 30 Hammer Tide pings. Tonight I'm your host, Phil, and joining me is our local fish aficionado, Skylar. How are you doing? Doing pretty great. This is <laughs> the episode that I'm excited to be on, breaking it down. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you to be able to be our local Ideneth expert. If you couldn't have guessed by that, uh, this episode is going to be our deep dive on Sirenize Razors. But before we get to that, some quick context for recording. We are recording on October the 11th, 2023. Death Gorge is on pre-order? Maybe? (laughs) (laughs) It is no longer on the GW website. And according to some posts on... So, you know, they like put those links up on Facebook that say like upcoming pre-orders or whatever. And they link out to the website. And it shows... The Warcry box and Death Gorge. But if you click on the link to go to the Death Gorge piece, it just gives a 404 error and people are like, I'm getting an error. And they're like, it's delayed in North America and Canada. And it's like, you should have announced that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, here we are. We have a realm reset. We have a new box. We have so much hype. And it's like, People just want to get their hands on it. Yeah, just right. Uh, so hopefully it's not going to be delayed too long, but it'll be what it is. I um, suppose not a new realm, uh, a realm refresh in the sense. Yeah, that, yeah, that a new, yeah. a new, a new take on an yep. old friend, uh, ogre. We cannot quit you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, as always, you know, as part of beginning to do these early takes and deep dives, we are always thankful for getting these review copies from Games Workshop. So uh, despite having the disappointment of a delay, we understand and we are very grateful to have had a box now for a few weeks to be able to dig in. Um, as I had mentioned, the topic is Sirenized Razors. We are going to try to do as thorough of a uh, coverage as we can for having not actually played them all that much. Uh, we're going to try and talk through uh, sort of what what they do well, what they don't do well, what we think you should try to do with them as you're trying to figure out what their play styles will be, what the strategies you use would be, and then uh, potentially some some takes for like what what are we doing with these in nemesis what are we doing for these in championship and uh if you are not planning to play them but you're planning to play in a community that will almost certainly have them what might you do this is not going to be a card by card rundown though uh if you would like to read all the cards and all the detail and see our takes on them from the entire what the hex cast we have that up over on our blog and that can be found at uh, the mortalrealms.com's uh, What the Hex page, or you can find it linked on our other uh, episodes. But before we go through all that, we have some normal topics and some some fairly large news. Uh, community shout out. Skylar, uh, do you have anything that you'd like to shout out? Sure. Yeah, I'll kick it off here Uh, with breaking news at the time of recording. uh, A new podcast has been spun up. Uh, It is named Underworlds Underground. 
and it is helmed by Saxton, Fish Mode, and Sleeks Bowl. Uh, those are handles that I'm familiar with uh, across the discords. Uh, that is two mics and and a Saxton. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, maybe they should just change the name of the show. That sounds that just rolls off the tongue much better, right? Two two mics and a saxton, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but uh, uh, Sleeks Bolt, I have a drive into work tomorrow, so I'll be listening to you on my drive in. Ah, uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if someone had asked me earlier today. What do you, what would you think if there was going to be a new podcast? I would have been like, well, who's going to be making a new podcast? And uh, it's it's great to see these guys collaborating, though. And I I am happy to have more Underworlds content just generally. And uh, I like I like what Fish Mode's been doing. So I like the idea of him contributing to a podcast. Um, so good luck, guys! And I'm sure you're going to do great. I am incredibly enthusiastic. I I know without having listened to it yet, that's going to be worth your time. Uh, definitely go check them out. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, you know, as happens with most new releases in this game, you get a deluge of content from all the different content creators. So uh, whatever your format of content that you prefer, whichever hosts you prefer to listen to, uh, whether that be because of uh, how they present the content or perhaps you just like some people's voices better. Uh, you know, go go check them all out because everybody's got different takes um, and everybody's got some different thoughts on the new box. And it's, it's great to get to dive in and sort of digest all those takes. There's <laughs> you could be busy for a while, I feel like, with all the stuff that's been released in the last week. Want to highlight there too the Battle Mallet uh, podcast. This is the first time that they've been able to join release day off of a preview right. copy, uh, yeah. which is another thing to be excited about. Uh, in the words of Davey, I hope your crew had access to uh, some champagne bottles that you could smash over your monitors. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as one does. Oh, yes. You know, as you do. <laughs> um, I, I, I've got the, the stash of bubbly right here next to the computer, all, all ready to go. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, beyond just what we're doing as a, you know, community of content creators, we also got a really cool thing from Games Workshop. Uh, they have been doing for a while now a meta watch series where game designers talk with uh, folks from this meta watch group and have videos basically talking about sort of what is going on in each of the different games in uh, Games Workshop's sort of realm of games. So Age of Sigmar, 40K, uh, Kill Team, I think, um, have all had these. Uh, and now we have one for Underworlds, which is really cool um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, I, I personally am excited because it, it sort of shows that they're invested in Underworlds still. Uh, they're willing to make a YouTube video uh, where they had fairly important individuals in the design of the game actually sitting down and intelligently talking about it and giving 
um, sort of a peek behind the curtain, as it were, into some of the strategies and thoughts about balancing the game. So absolutely excited to see more of it. And if you haven't watched it already, you can go and find it uh, on Games Workshop's official site. Yeah, I am equally excited. I think its mere existence speaks to the health of the game uh, and the future of the game. I think uh, it's the most uh, like candid and informational content we've gotten uh, around Underworlds probably ever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, when I say candid, like we even uh, get uh, spoiled for us that there are buffs on the way for uh, Loon Court and for Velmorn. Yeah. Um, so a little tease there. And the candidness goes further than, you know, a tease into the future. And, uh, you know, really kind of diving into the questions presented in really easy to understand and digest lingo. And I really enjoyed that, you know, sit down conversation style uh, that it was all presented in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and being that it was a conversation that you could tell that <laughs> he actually knows what he's talking about. Whereas like sometimes you get the community articles and it's like, I don't think you know anything about Underworlds, <laughs> um, which is a, a nice, a nice change of pace to be like, yes, somebody who actually, you know, knows our game, plays our game, understands the community and like, what are the things that we're dealing with? Uh, so really, really cool. Absolutely. Uh, but I think that's it for news. Obviously, having had back-to-back, now-to-back episodes, we've kind of, we don't have as many news things to pull from as we usually do. So uh, I think that's good, unless there's anything else that you think needs to be shouted out. Uh, everybody that put out day one content, heroes, all of you. Yeah, of course. Oh, and I, I suppose, I don't know that we've shouted it out enough, but... The deck builder websites, all of you are true heroes in this community because I would venture to guess that 99% of people who build decks for this game use your content and you choose to give of your time freely to make these things so that we can use them. Uh, And you do so on incredibly short turnarounds. So kudos and you are heroes. Shout out. Underworlds DB and Wonderworlds Club. Yes, absolutely. All right, then. So on to our main topic. We got lots of fish folk to talk about. Let's just dive right in. So this warband is visually somewhat similar to what we saw in Soul Raid. But I think in terms of stats and abilities and playstyle, they feel pretty different uh what what was your take after reading through them the first time yeah so with the with elvane soul raid they have uh carved out an identity as invading aggro and when i was reading these guys i started to hesitate you know, i had this like you know a predisposition that like Ideneth are, go- are going to be invading aggro just simply because i've only known one example so far and right. so i've been looking at them through the lens of invading aggro and i'm like i don't think they're going to be doing that <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah which uh, we'll definitely be exploring more throughout the episode and 
you know, they, they have their beast-like additions to their team. Soul Raid having Duneclaw and Spinefin. Here mm-hmm. we have uh, Sephanir, this mighty uh, squid <laughs> that looks absolutely fantastic. Yes. And has tricks, as one would expect from a creature addition to an Ida team, uh, reactionary tricks. Uh, we have a leader in Elethane and in Sirenai with comparable stat lines that really kind of remind you of each other and kind of invoke this idea of this is what um, now an Ideneth leader looks like and thralls on the team, you know, to round it out. So, yeah, the, the similarities are there. Uh, the Inspire mechanic is <laughs> another similarity uh, and now a new constant where we have an ebb and flow on when you're going to see Ideneth uh, in general. Yeah. Uh, reach inspiration, you know, over the course of a game, it'll happen on the game's timer and then they will actually uninspire as well. Uh, so when you're up against them, you know, you're trying to, or, or if you're, you know, playing them, you're trying to manage the ebb and flow of that, which I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So we're both thinking, okay, they're probably not invading aggro. Let's, let's, let's go through these fighters sort of to lay a baseline so that everybody knows sort of where we're coming from and then, and then we can get into what we actually thought were uh, the reasonings for what we think they actually will do well if it's not invading aggro. So Sirenai of the Abyss, this is their leader. She is a wizard. She's level two wizard. She has similar to the rest of the sort of elf fighters, it, four move, one block. The wounds characteristics are different. Uh, she has four. The uh, thralls have three. But, um, you know, it, they're, they're pretty straightforward in terms of that basic stat block. That's, you know, stuff we've seen, not necessarily for elves, but as a pretty generic stat block for most of the game. And then her attack is a range two spell attack, which is a little different than what we're used to. Usually you'd expect three, but it does do two damage. Um, and it is using the focus characteristic. So this is very similar to having a staff or spear attack action, which I feel like on leaders, we usually see range two, two smash, two damage. But some interesting and different things going on with her. She has a special action. And I know that you have been pretty excited about this one. So how about you run this down for folks, Skylar? So this is called Hammer Tide. And the action reads, place the scatter token in this fighter's hex, draw a straight line from the center of the token in the direction indicated by the smash symbol. Uh, The first time this line enters a hex occupied by an enemy fighter, deal one damage to that enemy fighter and stagger that fighter. And first off, when you read, you know, put a scatter token on the board, your brain kind of immediately is like, oh, we're going to roll some dice. We're going to scatter. No. (laughs) The reason we're putting a scatter token on the board is so that you can put a hammer on the board. (laughs) (laughs) Putting the hammer down. (laughs) Draw a straight line from it, and you're going to laser damage out. Yeah. Um, In our Death Gorge kind of like kickoff episode, I actually kind of speak to there being a a way to block line of sight here. Uh, I don't 
100% recall uh, how I worded it, but I definitely implied like line of sight matters here, and it 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 does not. Yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of a mistake on the fly in the moment. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about this is it's it's going through whatever's in front of it, whether that be uh, friendly or block taxes, looking for that first enemy fighter. Yeah, and so you know positioning then becomes really kind of a mini game against this warband, right? Because there's going to become these straight line alleyways, right? Where it's like, oh, if I stand anywhere here or here, I can get hammer tided. But if I stand here, Siren has to move first. And since you can't charge in hammer tide or move in hammer tide without doing it in two actions, it becomes this thing of like, well, how am I going to position safely against this? That's where the finesse of this warband starts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Because if you're if you're playing against them, uh, like you're constantly thinking about, am I landing myself in a position where um, I'm opening up a hammer tide action? Which means on your side of the table, you can put your fighters in positions where if charged, right, uh, you're creating this window. So mm-hmm. it's like, hey, yeah, you know, feel free to, but just so you know, laser beam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Water lasers. Uh, and it would, I think, be quite punishing if it was just straight line ping, deal of damage. But that's stagger. Uh, I feel like this is going to set up a lot of situations where somebody is like out of position and then you're like, okay, ping you, stagger you, next activation, I now have rerolls against your charged fighter who's not going to be able to get out of the way. And all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, that's a big change from what I maybe thought I had to all of a sudden you've got rerolls and I'm hurt and like, ooh, scary stuff. Agree. And um, out the gate, too, I know we, we brought this up during our, our, our breakdown episode, but like as soon as you start putting boards down, too, um, you and starting to place fighters, you're, you're thinking about the lanes that are being created. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're, you or your opponent's positioning boards, you're kind of eyeing up, you know, where starting hexes are going to line up against each other. And so that might influence how you decide to put boards down, um, from experience, uh, and from initial like giddy theory, uh, you know, longboarding with them is something that the Siren Eye player absolutely wants to be doing because we're limiting how few of positions I need to be in with siren eye to have you know these wide lanes or wide open lanes right yeah there's so many fewer of them and they're you know tightly packed together where uh i'm just pushing one away versus having to like push into an angle a few from where i currently stand so you're, you're thinking about it right at the beginning of the game when you're placing boards when you're placing fighters i know uh something i found myself as um the one running siren eye uh like deliberating over is like i don't even know where to put my own fighters sometimes <laughs> it like if if they could potentially line up with an enemy hex i'm like ah i need to save that one as an option for her <laughs> um but that <laughs> yeah uh as i'm saving her for last but uh then you you kind of have to give in and, and find like okay like i'm willing to to give in and give up that position because i also need to keep um my relatively squishy fighters a little safer yeah so i think ultimately what we are really trying to say is that siren eye is going to be important to this warband and you will probably design your entire strategy around this fighter um 
which isn't dissimilar from how wizard warbands have worked in the past, but it's it's a very different sort of strategy. So uh, we'll absolutely as we get to cards, we'll absolutely talk more about Sirenai. But I think uh, it it is important to understand just how critical Hammer Tide is to the warband and um, how it affects just about every aspect of your game. And I'm going to be pretty excited throughout the course of the episode to echo similarities to Elethane's Soul Raid. So uh, Elethane is similarly important to that warband because like, you have such massive accuracy with him during round two. So you're playing this game of trying to like hold him back and keep him alive, at, but then also getting him into position for that entire round two. Yeah. Uh, so you have you know two Ideneth warbands now where their leaders are just playing these pivotal roles. Uh, and it's really cool to see. Yeah, but but in very different ways, right? So um, I like that they made sure that they're, they have similar style. You know, there's parts of their design that are stylistically similar, but they're built in such a way that even with those stylistic similarities, they're going to play differently. I like that they yeah. did that because you wouldn't necessarily want these to just be uh, Soul Raid 2.0. Yeah, the reprisal. Yeah. No, they're they're fundamentally different yeah. for sure. Very much. Uh, so before we, I guess, go and start talking about her inspired side, let's let's just quick run down what actually is their inspired mechanic. And this one is I'm, I'm going to read it, but then I think we can just sort of say. Uh, a little bit summarize it yeah because yeah. it, it, it's a yeah. little bit much so if it is your third power step in round one your second power step in round two or your first power step in round three that that is your inspire window um yeah and then your uninspire window is at the end of the round uninspire this fight yeah so so this is how, so that's how you inspire your fighter. Once they flip over, they all have this uh, title is what it's called rule. Just like Skylar said, at the end of the round, inspire. So uh, the timing basically is just always moved back one, uh, moved up one power step. So exactly third, you'll inspire, which it. It is important to note in your power step is when this triggers. Correct. Not just the third power step in a round. It has to be your third power step. So if you go second, your inspire comes later. Which means uh, anytime you go first in a round, you'll get to enjoy any defensive boon um, that your war or your fighters receive a little longer yeah. uh, in that given round. Yeah. A way to kind of hold this inspire in your head uh, that's been working for me is if it's round one, you're going to get one activation with your yep. inspiration. If it's round two, two, round three, you're going to get a full three activations with your inspire. So if you think about it that way, then it helps you understand how it's facilitated, right? So if I'm going to have one activation in round one, well, then I'm going to inspire after my third so that my fourth is the one I get yep. in round one. Yep. Absolutely. And since it is an inspire that triggers in the power step, you don't. What is the next inspire window? Is there an inspire window so, in the power step? Not in, but immediately okay, after. So, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, following an activation, you have reaction inspire surge, yep. but also following a power step, you have reaction inspire surge. Yeah, that's what I thought. So it's important then to note as well, if you have power cards that care about fighters being inspired or uninspired, hint, <laughs> they do, the timing on that does matter. And, and you are going to need to be careful that like you don't accidentally think, oh, I, I'm in this power step, therefore they're inspired, so now I'm going to do the thing. No. Basically, you'll have a similar number of power steps in which fighters will be inspired to the number of actions that you get, similar to how Skylar was explaining it. So, um, Absolutely. Tricky. And that's going to matter a lot I, yes. in uh, Rivals and Nemesis. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, and I think, I think it's a lot to just keep track of at first. Well, I think once you get used to it, it's like, okay, yeah, I see how this works and it's like in, more intuitive, but just looking at it and reading it, you're like, wait a minute, when does all this happen? So uh, I think important to spend the time on it now before we dive more into their strategy, but just hopefully that's clear enough. Uh, when Siren Eye does inspire, not a huge change. Moving up to speed five, which is not the norm for the rest of the warband. Uh, so the speed boost is something to keep in mind. And then she does also switch over to channel from focus. So she is slightly more accurate, but that is the extent of her changes. Yeah, and I think those are fine. Uh, I think they're modest, uh, but welcome, while not overshadowing the importance of the, the hammer tide action there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it shows that for at least for Siren Eye, you are not probably really worried about the Inspire all that much. You probably feel pretty good about activating Siren Eye just whenever you have the opportunity to do so, whether she's inspired or not. Agree. That then brings us into the Thralls, or the Twins as I like to think about them, or potentially Thing 1 and Thing 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh Skylar, would you like to run down their basic stats absolutely so as stated before they are on four movement with one shield the both of them and three wounds then uh they're on their inspired uninspired side sharing the same attack profile uh they both have a spear they have a range two two smash two damage attack and that's it. So as Phil stated, thing one, thing two, yeah. the differences come alive when they inspire. Yeah. And and in terms of having two reach to two damage fighters right out the gate, that that's not bad at all, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. We, absolutely not. Bad. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, it, it's like, you know, I feel like I've been terrorized by Manok and Tough Skull multiple times where it's just like, oh man, these guys can both just kind of chill and take swings at me and I can't do anything about it. Uh, they kind of start building this glass cannon picture for me because they have a threat range of six out the gate. They have the ability to stand at that reach two when they attack you, right? So mm -hmm. they're not granting you in most cases if i'm picking my targets well they're not granting you the ability to just attack me back whether i failed or succeeded uh at my attack you're probably going to have to close that distance with a charge or a push you know or similar so they're able to to you know reach out at you with that threat range of six but to compensate for that 
you know, they're on three wounds with one shield out the gate. So if you've got somebody in your warband that can flex up to that three damage right right away and are throwing multiple dice and you're able to just land two successes on me, uh, they'll they'll start feeling pretty glass pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that balancing act here. It's definitely something to get used to. I've been playing elves as long as I've been uh, playing Underworlds, and this is pretty typical for, for elvish players. Uh, you adapt constantly to losing fighters. And anytime you risk one out, you kind of clench and hope they survive. And you're, you're delighted <laughs> when it's like, oh, yeah, they did live. I love it when they do that. Yeah, it's sort of that like hope for the best, but plan for the worst kind of a game plan, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, as they inspire, their stats do change. So I I really appreciate that the two fighters sort of fill different roles once they're inspired. Um, so Althir inspires to gain cleave on the regular spear attack. So uh, just a little more accurate. And, but then also picks up a whirling blade, which has scything. Uh, it's two fury for two damage, which two damage on scything is scary, at least in my opinion. So when you're facing hordes, you probably are going to value Alethir more highly. Uh, Agree. Or armored targets. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're trying to take out um, lots of block fighters. On the flip side, Renglaith is just going for uh, Grievous. So Renglaith is going to be hitting harder. So you probably care more about Renglaith surviving when you have high wound fighters that you have to deal with. Uh, Agree. Yeah, and his profile there knocks up to three fury. Yeah. Uh, again, coming from two smash. Yeah. So giving you the extra dice to to help you try to hit that, that grievous result. Yeah, which is really nice because it's still at reach two. So uh, it gives you a little bit of accuracy boost, but critically that extra die. Um, I like both fighters inspired. I... I think, you know, you will structure your game plan differently for your opponents and you kind of have to know like which one you need <laughs> from, I think, turn one, activation one. At least that's that was my sense reading the cards the first time and playing against them. Um, Mine as well. Yeah, I think you're going to find Alethir is commonly your problem solver. Yep. And the one that you want to protect. So you're probably going to play a little more riskier with Renglaith, but it'll be important to not fall into habit and recognize when you want to make that trade. Yeah. When you realize like, oh, I'm actually really going to want that spike to three damage potential. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a few different scenarios where I would want the three damage more. The, the most obvious is like, I'm facing somebody like Molog where I just, I just want to put down as much damage as I possibly can. I don't want it to have to be, you know, chipping away two, 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 two to get to seven. It's like, I, I'd like to be able to throw threes so that I can then do it in fewer attacks kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that particular example, it's like if you can get at least one three in there, yeah. you've cut you know, the action requirement down by one. If you can get two in there, hey, then you can just safely hammer tie yeah. that seventh one down. 
And and then I think the other situation is four and five wound fighters where you could even be putting damage upgrades out and then be setting up Ringlaith into a situation where you could be one-shotting even four wound fighters. So, um, yeah, they're they're your Swiss army knife. Um, Combined, you can answer just about any problem. So uh, keep, keep them at the ready. And they do also have a cool secondary rule. We've seen this before. They pick up what's called unshakable. They don't count as on guard, but they do count rolls of dodge as successes. So they they kind of get half of guard. Not a huge defense boost, but we'll take it, right? <laughs> Agree. Yeah, this ends up being pretty mild, uh, but I like that it offers you some survivability against cleave attacks. Yeah. yeah. Anything else you think uh, needs saying about Ringlith and Alethir? I think that's pretty covered. Uh, the one thing for those that were looking at the models and theorizing, you know, uh, what those models might indicate, there is a lantern in the hands of Renglaith. Keep that in mind. It's an upgrade. We'll get back to yeah. it. Yeah. Also, a, a handy dandy way to keep track of which one is which, because they otherwise look pretty much identical. Reminds me of like it, it's more distinct than this, but whenever I'm playing against uh drapers rape drapers wraith oh, creepers i have to look for the bird yeah uh, and it's like if i see if i see the bird beak means cleave <laughs> kill that one <laughs> to protect my uh block fighters yeah yeah they are they are subtly different and pretty pretty tough uh you know and you know what the other ghosts actually are all pretty subtly different too um but <laughs> we digress uh we have a squid to talk about here Absolutely. You know, uh, what everyone has been waiting for, I'm sure. Uh, Skylar, how about you You tell the world about Sephanir? Oh, boy. Let's get cracking. <laughs> first off, uh, the hunter, he, or the keyword he dons is hunter. And Sephanir is also a flyer. A flyer at five move, one dodge, and four wounds on his an uninspired side uh, with an attack named rending limbs. Yeah. And this starts at range one, uh, three dice looking for fury uh, dealing two damage. Uh, But what is the star of the show is uh, the signature ability here called phase ink. And this is a reaction after an attack action that targeted the spider Stagger up to one visible enemy fighter within two hexes and then place this fighter on a hex within one hex of no one's territory and more than one hex from each enemy fighter. And there's a lot to break down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I first read this, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it gives him a way to sort of get out of danger when somebody charges in on him so you can hopefully make sure that he's not just going to get ganged up on or whatever. That is a wild underestimation of what, what it is like dealing with this ability. (laughs) Um, So from one of the games that we played, I was in a situation where I got to use, um, Oh, is it a icon of access? Yeah. Icon of excess is what it's called. I was trying to think of the name. Basically, if you succeed in casting a spell, you can then make a move or attack with all your fighters. Um, Really, really good, by the way. Um, But 
I was in a situation where I was trying to get down Sephanir. So I was like, well, I've got reach two attacks. I'll, I have reach on Sephanir for multiple fighters. So I'll start with this one. And then I swung and I missed. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to phase ink. And then staggered my fighter and teleported to a spot where I wasn't in range anymore. And I was like, oh, oh, wait a minute. That's, that's annoying and disruptive. And now what do I do? And that kept coming up. It kept happening where I was like, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that positioning. Oh no, now I'm <laughs> staggered. What am I doing? What is what is going on? So I, I would just say don't underestimate how big of an impact this repositioning can be because it can be like you're going from one side of the board to the other or you can be like just jumping just a couple hexes away so you're st- or, or like I'm going to go sit on an objective because despite being an, a squid, he is not a beast, so he can hold objectives. And so it's like you could accidentally let your opponent hold an extra objective off of this. Um, so, yeah, lots of lots of things that I was unpleasantly surprised playing against it. So hammer tide is fantastic like no no question about it and the potential to look at your opponent and say stop it's hammer tide yep yep <laughs> really yep. increases you that to. you have to <laughs> thank you listener jake by the way uh hangs out in our discord and was like i cannot wait <laughs> to shout this at my I opponents mean, and watch them die inside a little yeah yeah um, <laughs> hopefully they actively just quit right there <laughs> but with as great as great and unique as Hammer Tide is, um, and how much you can do with that, this actually stole the show for me. This is my favorite uh, ability uh, that the Warband, you know, comes baked in with for sure. I, I'm going to jump into the Inspire side uh, before I gush about it too much more because it it, it kind of helps build this picture. When Sephanir inspires, Sephanir moves up to two dodge. Sephanir also gains a extra dice on rending limbs, bringing it up to four fury and ensnare. So that means that this warband actually ends up with sources for both cleave and ensnare innately, um, which is really cool to see. And another echo over to soul raid. But looking back at that two dodge that you gain, that increases your chance to not take any damage uh, when you're targeted and, you know, get that phasing off, which it doesn't actually even have to target the person that targeted you. Yeah. you <laughs> like if there's another fighter within uh, two of Sephanir when targeted, like you can just choose that one and then blink away. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Yeah. It, it, it's really, there's so many possible opportunities for this that trying to like fully game plan for it, either with it in your warband or against it is really hard until you've seen it a number of times, because it's just like, Oh man, there's like this whole you know, matrix spreadsheet type thing of like, if I go down this path, I could be doing all these things. Or if I go down this path and it's just like, oh my God, how am I going to ever be able to predict what's going to happen? And I, and I think that like, that is how this is supposed to feel. And I feel like they nailed it. Like it's just pure confusion and, and it's almost impossible to predict. Agree. Uh, and the value of it increases if you can get a ranged weapon on Sephanir because again, Sephanir is not a beast. Yeah. So Sephanir can be a total weapon caddy. Absolutely. If you can get range two 
or, or higher on, then when you blink and you fulfill that requirement of uh, blinking in, you know, one hacks away from a yeah, fighter, you still attack. You're still open for the attacks. Pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, I think having mechanics like this in the game is one of those things that I think lends itself well to a high skill ceiling. Everybody's going to use this. People who understand it well will use it well. And people who understand this well and understand all the different synergies that it can have in the game are going to take it to like this really high level where they can do things that people weren't expecting and turn games like on their head because they know you know if i do this that and the other thing and i get to reposition here then all of a sudden it opens up this strategy and it's like oh man i love that so uh really cool not something we get to see very often in fighters in different warbands uh they are just the four fighter war, man. That is all of them. Do you have any other final thoughts about the fighters specifically or anything more generically about the war band before we start talking about strategies? I think that about covers it from a general standpoint. All right. Let's, uh, let's dive into game plan. Yeah. So what is this war band trying to do? What are they good at? So I'll ask it this way. When you first looked at them, what did you think? And then after you played with them a time or two, what did you think? Yeah, so the first time I sat down to play with them, I noticed that they had a ton of stagger support and incentive to lean into stagger. So they actually have in-house two objectives that are looking at stagger. One, that is a surge uh, for two glory, and it's looking for three or more surviving enemy fighters, each to have one or more stagger tokens. Uh, and this is called sensory deprivation. Uh, it's also flexible in the sense that it, this is a hybrid, and it says, or three or more enemy fighters are out of action. So initially, I thought that the three stagger uh, was pretty pretty enticing, especially given that we have stagger built into Hammer Tide, and we have stagger built into Phase Inc. So with a little bit of support, which they have in their power deck, uh, I thought that was uh, a really enticing two glory surge. And then just seeing the flexibility there kind of like made it a, a sure in to like my build ideology where it's like, and it's flexible where like, if I need to just take fighters down, I can score it that way. Absolutely. Like you've, you've reduced the investment, the risk of, you know, making sure that I can get that stagger payoff by offering me this other way to score it. So that is a highly potent surge in their deck, sensory deprivation. And then they have a glory end phase, single glory end phase called mind erosion. Uh, score this in an end phase if one or more enemy fighters each have one or more stagger tokens. So I see this, I see three glory for stagger. I see two fighters that can support it. Um, some great power cards that can do so as well. And I kind of just was like, I guess for, for my first game, I'm, I'm going to lean into that and you know kind of explore. Since then... Uh, well, before I go since then, um, how about you? You know, you're looking at him for your first time. You're playing him for your first time. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. So, so I was thinking that, you know, they were described as being aggro, but I looked at their stats and I went, this is not an aggro warband or at the very least, if it is an aggro warband, they are one that is going to die. Uh, <laughs> um, which is fine. There can be aggro warbands that don't care about dying. 
but this didn't feel like that. Um, I was like, I don't think I want either Alethea or Renglaith to just charge forward and get dead. That feels really bad. Um, I definitely don't want Sirenai dead. And that leaves Sephanir and it's like, I don't like, yeah, he's kind of got wounds, but four wounds goes away in a hurry. And that one dodge on his uninspired side, that's not like looking big and tanky to me. So I quickly got off the idea that these were going to be aggro. And I started to notice that they do actually have a number of things that care about holding objectives. Um, They do indeed. So they have a end phase called inexplicable dread where they're saying you hold one or more objectives. And one of those objectives is in no one's or your, or an enemy territory. And then they also have quota of souls, which is your warband holds two or more objectives within one hex of no one's territory or three or more enemy fighters out of action. You see that again. Um, Ooh, that flexibility. Yeah. And so the thought that came to mind for me immediately was like, well, we've got, multiple ranged fighters and a fighter who can teleport around midline maybe this is a flex warband where you need to move forward to make some attacks but you don't necessarily have to be like a full all the way in warband so my thought was you're gonna like sort of move up to camp midline and then hope that you can just sort of poke your opponents from there um but to, admittedly, I didn't feel great about that because holding the midline is not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> um, you're still pretty vulnerable doing that. So that, that was, yeah, that was where I was at. I love where your first impressions are at because we're both speaking to what we're seeing in the objective deck. And that's very often how you describe and, and begin to understand a warband's game plan Yeah, is, you know, what is their objective deck speak to? What are they trying to do? And you could summarize this objective deck in three themes. Uh, you have staggering, you have hold. Um, they have uh, essentially a reprint of path to order in their deck yep. or path up order. And that card is called means of survival. Your warband holds two or more objectives and two or more enemy fighters are out of action. Um, so that's like the other hold piece they have in there. Um, and then the, the final theme that would round out in three themes, their objective deck is just taking fighters out of action. They have like three surges that are looking for it, arguably a fourth one in three hammer tide actions being done. Uh, that's a surge. It's looking for like a combination here. Actually, let me just read that one. Uh, that's rising threat surge. Score this immediately after your warband's third or subsequent hammer tide action and or cast spell in the same phase. So. Uh, it, it ends up kind of arguably falling in, you know, dealing damage, taking fighters out of action because you're casting spells and hammer tides dealing damage. But frankly, it's one of one of the few objectives that kind of stands out on its own where uh, they have, I think their hardest objective is soul harvesters. Uh, score this in an end phase. If more enemy fighters are out of action, then friendly fighters are out of action. So I knew that was something I wanted to lean away from uh, right away because uh, with how weak you are, um, you have to have really surgical strikes and then survive said surgical strikes to make sure that you can get soul harvesters going. Um, but what, what do you think about um, that kind of th- in, in three themes breakdown where we're looking at stagger, hold, and 
a lot that's looking for out of action fighters. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you absolutely have those three themes. I think that the three themes are actually less disparate than they maybe seem. Um, potential exception being, you know, something like uh, Tsunami Strike, I think, is a weird outlier here where you're taking a fighter out of action in enemy territory specifically, which is a very aggressive thing to be doing, whereas the rest of the deck is very flexy where it's like, I don't necessarily want to be all the way in enemy territory. Um, and okay. and it's like, I want to hold some objectives. So I feel like that one's a weird outlier, but it is important to note that, and this is not something I queued into right away, but um, it, it does allow for picking up the kill, not just with attacks. So if you have other ways to do that, <laughs> you can you can use pings you can push people into lethals whatever and it'll still trigger so it's not entirely like disparate to the rest of the uh the strategies okay yeah so after like the initial games i started finding that the identity they were carving out in my mind is more this kg play style um it's the best term i kind of have to describe it where you're going to spend initial turns of the game holding back uh and part of the finesse of this warband is figuring out uh when to put somebody forward who that is because uh hammer tide actually lends itself really well to being your opener to giving you the chance to play reactionarily to your opponent i think that's the number one thing this warband wants to do is they want to sit back and react to you. Uh, they definitely don't want to be the one kicking off the tempo and giving you that reactionary action or activation against them, right? If, if I go first and I lunge in, then even if I survive that first activation, you have three more to handle who I put forward, right? So the more I can decrease how much time you have to try to take down my warband, the better I'm going to do. So I, I find that you want to play a lot of hold back. I think I think they're going to excel whenever they're able to like hold two objectives in the back and force you to come to them and then react in that way. I definitely agree. An interesting note that I didn't even really cue into until we were just going through the fighter cards again just now, that idea of needing to hold back and then charge or the hold back and then get aggressive, it's mirrored in their inspire condition. The early parts of the game, you're going to be sitting back, prepping, planning, waiting. Now you're inspired, go. And then you start it over and but you don't have to wait as long and then you go precisely and then finally you get to the final round and if you can keep them all alive until the very final round i think you're going to be finding that you have a lot of flexibility in what you can do and a lot of power to work with because their inspired sides are pretty good um i'm not going to say they're like super super strong but like they're definitely better than their uninspired side so I agree. Uh, I I think that you do want to hold back. I think you want to wait. I think you want to try and draw your opponents to you as much as possible. And I, I think your instincts with the stagger and hold stuff 
lends itself really well to that because you can stagger fighters without having to go and get in their face. And by doing that, you can be scoring a little bit of glory as you go and hopefully disrupting their strategy through power cards and then finally coming in to try and clean up or get on objectives. Agree. Yeah, and I think they have such a well-rounded offering across their fighters that they're going to be fairly flexible in what you can pair them with. Um, So really excited to explore that with you later. Uh, To highlight one thing uh, coming later is uh, when I first read Sephanir, and where he's landing off that phase ink, that's that's where Fearsome Fortress lives. So then seeing objectives that are looking to potentially uh, hold one or two in Fearsome Fortress territory to know that there's stagger here, it kind of started coming up as this natural synergy for, for me as like a starting point in either Nemesis or, or Championship. And I'd love to explore that a little more later, but I kind of wanted to just bring it up now to kind of speak to them as a game plan. Because if, if you're going that route, you're holding back and biding your time for when you're going to land your fighters in those positions. And you're using phase ink to help you get essentially a, a free positioning into that, uh, into that environment. Yeah. Um, for sure. I think, I think, you know, we will definitely discuss some of the pairings and what we think they work well with. Um, to that end though, what, what are, so let's, let's try and just say, so if you're looking at the objectives, since we talked about that's sort of how you start to construct your strategy, what are your must haves that inform what your strategy is going to be? I think, I think we already said sensory deprivation. That feels like an auto include. It's a surge for two. It's relatively doable, right? Agree. Yeah. Where, where do you look to next? What is the next thing that you're like, this is my must take from their faction cards. My next must take is another surge called snuff out. And what makes snuff out great is first, let me read it. Uh, surge score this immediately after your warband deals precisely enough damage to an enemy fighter to take that fighter out of action. Uh, this is not an attack action. Yeah. Uh, it can be, uh, but it's not limited to an attack action. And it's not uh, like their other surges that are looking for fighters to be taken out of action. It's not territory restricted either. Yeah. So that one stands out as the, the best of three kill surges in this deck. Agreed. And, and it, it is, not passive, obviously, because you're killing, but but the fact that you can do it with pings, the fact that you can do it with hammer tide, um, there's just a lot of situations that you can make this happen in. Um, we've seen other surges very similar to this, where it's an attack action that deals precisely enough damage, and those are still usually good enough to take, at least in Nemesis, if not in Championship, and this is that with a few extra ways to score it. So I agree. This is a good one. So we have two strong surges at this point. And then I, I would say the next one that I look to is that I'm like, okay, well, what about your, um, end phases? And I'm looking at either means of survival or quota of souls as sort of the next, like 
must take because they're your two glories that are actually doable. But then it just becomes the question of which one's easier. You know, on on the one hand, one is saying you need to hold objectives within one hex of no one's territory. So like you said, this starts to lean you in that direction of, uh, you know, holding in the middle. But it also has the, that opt-out clause, whereas means of survival is an and clause where you need to do both things. Um, so personally, I'm leaning quota of souls. Um, and I think if you, if you take those three as sort of like, these are your must-haves, because I don't know, do you have any others in here that are like, I have to have this? Yeah, uh, is is a one glory end phase? It's mind erosion. Oh sure, um, yeah, yeah. Have yep. one fighter staggered. Yep, absolutely. Like so, you have that reliable uh, whether it's round one or round three end phase, and you, you want your one glory to be as reliable as possible, especially um, as early as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we would prefer that all of our end phases be for two glory, but sometimes you just need that seed glory, right? Agree. And I think with uh, means of survival, the call out there, you know, you're able to hold two, so wherever you'd like. Yeah. But you have to have that two or more enemy fighters out of action. I think this ends up being if you if you bring it, um, you're leaning into this as you know something that's going to score for you in rounds two or three, and it becomes riskier because that means, I like I don't think this is a inexperienced uh, player pick for this warband. Like, I think if this is your first time playing with this warband and you're building your first pairing, this, this probably makes the cutting floor, uh, until you decide if it matches a play style that you're comfortable with, with them. Because if you lose two fighters in round one, and then in rounds two or three, lose another one, then you might not be able to hold an object or two objectives at the same time, you finally crossed over that two or more enemy fighters are out of action line. Yeah. So I I, I think it's it has a place. Like right. I don't think it's you know a card you strictly leave at home, but I think it's one that you want some play experience informing whether or not that's going to work for you and uh, that's what you want to like plan and build towards. Yeah. I totally agree, and I think that you know we'll find that through experimentation, people will find probably a lot of different ways to play this warband, a lot of different pairings for it. But if, but if I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, we've got mind erosion, quota of souls, sensory deprivation and snuff out is like my bedrock. That's where I'm starting pretty much every deck. I'm just saying, get them in there because I know I can score these reliably some way. I'm feeling pretty good about that. And it gives me a lot of flexibility. Um, I am too. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm liking that. And it, you know, we are already starting to sort of see that little bit of glimmer just from Quote of Souls. It's like, hey, maybe maybe you want to hold near the middle line. But um, even if you can't make that happen, you still have these other options. So I think we have given a good rundown of the overall strategy based on what we're seeing in the objectives and why we think we can go those directions. What about the gambits? What in the gambits helps to support what we've already thought this playstyle should be? So speaking to tools that are going to assist with your game plan, a 
particularly spicy card is Spiteful Riptide. Yeah. This is uh, <laughs> inspired friendly fighters. So, so note right out of the gate, this is gated on when you're inspired. So you're managing, you know, whether or not uh, you're like, like, for example, if you draw this in round one, is this something you keep or is this something you mulligan? Cause you're going to have three uninspired activations. You're going to get less fuel out of this. Um, so you have this pull uh, on some of these power cards as to when they're going to provide you with the most value that you're going to have to manage. But to run this one down, it's inspired friendly fighters have the flying trait. After a friendly fighter's move action, stagger each enemy fighter whose hex that fighter moved through. This effect persists until the end of the round. Oh my gosh, Phil, I just realized something about this card. I had not realized until this moment. Did you pick? Did you pick it up? Uh, well, I, without knowing what you're thinking about, I probably can't quite guess as to what it is that maybe I would have missed before. No mind reading here. Okay. So, uh, inspired friendly fighters have the flying trait, right? Awesome. That's, that's, that was my preamble here of, you know, you're going to be managing, you know, when, when that has the most effect for you, but then, but then there's a period. And it goes on to say, after a friendly fighter's move action, stagger each enemy fighter whose hex that fighter moved through. This effect persists until the end of the round. That means this card can work for you turn one, round one, with Sephanir and his flying movement of move five. Like he can. So I had thought about that. Does this. Does this fall foul of the you need to be able to complete all aspects of the card? I mean, you have no inspired friendly fighters, so I I think I think you can prime this. You know, this effect persists until the end of the round. Like at some point in time, you're gonna have inspired friendly fighters. I don't think I don't think you run into a uh, restriction here where it's like you mm. must be able to convert somebody to a flyer right now. Maybe. Um, I think I think we're good here. I, I have thought that for so many cards where I'm like, well, surely I don't have to be able to do this to be able to play the card. And then people are like, no, you absolutely do. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, I guess the, the one that comes to mind immediately is there's the upgrade from Beastbound Assault. Uh, I don't remember what it's called. The names don't mean anything to me, but the it's like a little grub guy on your shoulder, and it's like heal a fighter, a friendly fighter one, period. Mm-hmm. Then push a friendly fighter, you know, up to one hex, and it's like they seem like two separate abilities, but it's like no, you have to be able to heal to push. Yeah, no, that makes sense because so in that case, you like uh, you'll know immediately, right? Like I'm not. I'm not getting a heal down. Whereas this, you know, blankets the field with inspired friendly fighters. Because it's persisting, you think, because it's not a specific fighter that that's the reasoning? Yeah, I think so. Like okay. if this had said... I can buy that. Choose a friendly fighter or choose a friendly or an inspired friendly fighter. Yeah. Um, okay. Then I, th- I think we'd be there. But I think with this blanket statement, we're persists, good. persists, so maybe you can just leave it out. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm willing to accept that interpretation. I had thought about it. So I guess I had read your mind, but I I had just thought, oh, this won't work because you can't do all the pieces of the card. Because if you don't have any inspired fighters, how can you make anybody have flying? But um, listeners, if you have an argument, 
one way or the other, let, please yeah, let, let us, us know. And Games Workshop, if you are listening, and we'll probably send you an email later, uh, please just get rid of that rule. Just <laughs> <laughs> it makes reading the cards so hard. There's times where it's like, wait, can I do this? Can I not do this? Like, make it cleaner to say these are the conditions in which you can play the card or they're not and like have it end there like obviously we cleared up the heal thing it's like if you can't remove wound tokens you can't heal but there's still like so many cards that have multiple clauses and they're like oh but if you can't finish one of the three things that the card does you can't play the card at all and it's like why why do we have to do that it doesn't make any sense to me it's logically makes cards complicated when they don't probably need to be but anyway i digress (laughs) it's still a really cool card it's doing a lot of things for you go on skylar yeah even uh, you know despite despite not realizing you know that this i i think has the ability uh to allow you to do this with saphonir earlier than than you see an inspired fighter i was already bringing this in my deck because even when even if you know i'm held back to when i'm inspired uh running you know somebody through uh, a fighter on my way to another fighter and staggering that one and then potentially also staggering my target if i can get you know through them as well before attacking them all of that's great like even 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 if i can just stagger the one i'm running through before i turn around and attack it like uh, I think this card has a lot of value, especially given that you're going to have six activations in the game. Uh, is how that breaks down, right? Yeah. Uh, one, two, and then three. So you're spending six activations inspired. So six activations where this could really be a benefit to you. Yeah. And it is important to note it is not after a fighter's activation in which they make a move action. So if you find ways to make moves outside of an activation, this will still trigger. So uh, just something to keep in mind. It probably won't come up a ton outside of championship based on what we're thinking the pairings would probably look like for Nemesis, but I think it's a it's a good um, thing to keep in your back pocket. Trick you might pull out. Agree. Yeah. So I have a favorite gambit. Uh, we were talking about gambits that, um, you know, specifically kind of help us with our game plan. Mm-hmm. But there's just one I, I'm dying to talk okay. about. Well, let's let's get it out of there. Uh, and first off, uh, I need to admit out loud uh, that this is a, spe- a spell. Magic. <laughs> he, he said it, folks. Oh, gosh. Uh, this is a spell that I like and am hyped about. <laughs> I'm playing with magic. What is wrong with me? Uh, who am I? Mm. All right. <laughs> So this is called Momentary Vortex. And this, for those familiar with Center of Attention, is Center of Attention in spell form. Uh, And that reads, uh, Gambit spell, uh, channel, one channel for casting. If cast, choose a fighter and push each other fighter that is within two hexes of the chosen fighter, one hex, so that they are closer to that fighter in an order you choose. If a fighter cannot be pushed in that way, do not push that fighter. Yeah. I love this card so much. Uh, I could gush all day about the applications of center of attention. The fact that you um, are, aren't limited to choosing your own fighter, that you can choose an enemy fighter. 
what that has meant uh, in the the time I played with center of attention is you can use it to pull fighters off of objectives uh, going into end phase and really disrupt disrupt hold game plans and scoring. This can help you set up supports. This can help you set up scything. Uh, this card has so much utility. Absolutely. Um, you know, anybody who has played with center of attention before should already be familiar with a lot of the different tricks here. Um, I think two key notes, one being a spell, it does have a slight additional restriction that, uh, center of attention doesn't have in that choosing a fighter with a cast spell does require line of sight to that fighter. Um, this is a fairly minor restriction, but it is a restriction, um, and block hexes are going to be more prevalent in this season because they can be placed at will after a plunder or with power cards. So keep that in mind. Somebody could block you from using this. Um, very, very good. Note. Not probably going to come up a lot, but it will come up sometimes and it may come up in just the wrong moment and cripple your game plan. But then the other thing that I think is really cool with this and is just something that usually a warband can leverage um, to make center of attention better is when they have a fighter whose positioning is tricky or um, can be unexpected. And Sephanir is that personified. Like if somebody is thinking, oh, I'm positioned well, I'm not in danger and they attack Sephanir and then you can reposition Sephanir into a spot where you will have a very disruptive momentary vortex. You could really catch somebody out. Um, and I do think that that is very important to keep in mind, both playing this warband and playing against them is that if you need a fighter to be able to set up your momentary vortexes, Sephanir might be the one to do it. Agree. Really good call. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, he can blink in and disrupt an area that you thought was completely safe. Yeah. I do think it's worth noting that along with that, there is another sort of synergy card with Sephanir lurking presence. This is a push too, but it's only for Sephanir. Strangely, they decided to write this in such a way that it is not a restricted card. It's just, it requires that you have Sephanir to push because it says push a friendly Sephanir. So you can't, you can't salvage it, which is frustrating. Um, if this card had said salvage, it would have made it into it's every... It's still going to go in every single one of their decks, but it's just sort of one of those weird things where like it can still end up being a completely dead card. Agree. And I, I personally find the, the ability to include a restriction on the bottom of a card and give it access to salvage. I find that to be an interesting way to balance a card. Yeah. Um, yep. There could have been an iteration of this card where it was salvageable and uh, in design and playtesting, they decided, Hey, you know, that pushes this card a little too far over the power curve than what we want. So we're going to leave it at this powerful push of, you know, up to two hexes, but we're going to take away its ability to be salvaged. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, well, I do think that it would be cool to be able to salvage this, it is very important to note that a push two in any direction with no like contingency on where you land is extremely powerful. So I'm not saying the card's not bad. Uh, it was just an interesting note 
this is very, very flexible. This will set up a whole bunch of things that you can do. This will allow you to get on to objectives unexpectedly. Um, I think it's a, it's a must take. I mean, if I see push two, I immediately am going to be interested in the card, no matter what the restriction is. And this basically is a almost no restriction. So love it a lot. Speaking of unexpected movement, uh, we have another spell. Another spell. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, called Countercurrent, uh, which summons to mind Countercharge. And if it does for you, then you're, you're already... Uh, in line with what this card is going to have to offer for you. Um, So this is a Gambit spell reaction. Uh, One channel, once again, play this after an enemy fighter's move action. If cast, choose a friendly fighter not adjacent to that enemy fighter. The chosen fighter makes a move action that must end within two hexes of the enemy fighter. Uh, One of the things I like about this is the flexibility to end within two hexes of that enemy fighter, uh, kind of speaking to their spears uh, yep. in their profile. So they don't necessarily have to come in and hug the charging fighter or, or the fighter that, that has just moved. But that's an option. Uh, if you want the additional support, like let's say it is a charge and not just a flat move, um, you can bring that in uh, a little closer to make sure that you're reducing the probability that they're able to land that attack by by increasing your defensiveness. Um, yeah, count, counter charge is great, and this is extremely flexible in the sense that it's after an enemy fighter's move action, and that you're able to really get flexibility on where that placement, uh, that landing spot is going to be. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of another situation where you could unexpectedly be on an objective right it's like a two hex bubble gives you a fairly big you know area in which you can be so it's not a completely free move like we see in some decks but it it's it's close like you'll end up in a lot of places you want to be if you can use this so um i do like that i i think that uh for some of the like hold near the midline um and and get your fighters moved around into positions sort of late where you're like holding back and now I can finally move. Uh, this feels like it, it synergizes with that perfectly. And uh, almost failed to mention here that Hammer Tide loves this as well, right? Yeah. All of a sudden you can completely reposition. And when you have that, you know, two hex bubble, like that repositioning is completely open as to where you're going to be able to land hammer tide in your next activation. Yeah. Um, something that Davey had called out on the blog, which I think we should just mention here because it is within two hexes, you could position your fighter around a blocked hex and make sure that it blocks line of sight. Um, it's, it's niche, but in, if you've ever been caught out by a maneuver that stops a charge, and of course, in this case, that charge would have to be a range two or three attack, but being able to reposition the fighter being charged because of that, you you can't move the fighter if they're adjacent, but if like they didn't land adjacent to you, you could then tuck them away behind a blocked hex. Like That's pretty brutal. It's a situation that won't come up much, but man, if you pull it off, you'll probably ruin your opponent's game plan. So, and you'll feel real good in that yeah, moment. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Um, 
So definitely keep that in mind as an option, um, as, as many people will probably at least experiment with placing blocked hexes in this season. Agree. Uh, are there any other gambits that you would like to highlight uh, that either speaks to their game plan or speaks to you personally? So there's a few others that I really like, but I think the only other one that I, you know, from the cards that we sort of pointed out, the only other one that I feel like really strongly synergizes is one called Reese. Well, okay. I will, I will just mention quickly, there is a spell Steed of Tides, which does synergize well with what we were calling out, but it does require double channels to cast. So I just, I don't think it's worth talking about too much because the variability becomes a big problem unless you want to be investing in spell casting to the point where like you're going to have rerolls or some extra spell level or something because it just becomes really difficult to guarantee that these are effects you can use reliably okay so what is this muse well, what has you here <laughs> so so the one that i think still synergizes well it's called resurfacing memory um and this is just a gambit you say choose an enemy fighter within two hexes of an un well one or more because they just wanted to make sure there was no window for messing this up somehow uninspired fighter friendly fighters and you just stagger them now i will say most of the rest of the cards that we haven't mentioned already do have a restriction to whether they're inspired or not inspired and i think that those those make these less useful gambits but when you are already leaning into a strategy that wants to be able to just have stagger tokens on the board, having a gambit that can just do it and do it at two hexes away is pretty valuable. Um, and, and as you already mentioned, we have our end phase, mind erosion, that we want to be able to have early in the game to be able to pick up a stagger and get this scored. This is an easy way to do it. And in round one, you have the most opportunity. So... I like it as a card. If we're leaning into stagger, I think you try and take it. Maybe it doesn't make the cut in championship, but then again, in championship, you can potentially also lean more heavily into stagger. So um, it's one that I like. I think it's it's close to the edge, though. I don't know that you always take it, but it fits the synergy of what we're sort of looking at as a sort of go-to strategy for these guys. Yeah, you've hit that on the head for... Uh... Uh, as far as uh, how I feel about it as well. Yeah, there are five gambits in this deck that look at whether they're inspired or uninspired and speak specifically to those timings, uh, right? And so um, with that, you kind of have to evaluate how much, how, how worthwhile that card is for you if you're drawing into it in the, the moments where you're not going to be meeting that. And the uninspired is a little trickier for me because as the game progresses, I'm going to see that less and less. Yeah. Um, they have particularly, this is going to be a really good card for them in uh, Rivals and potentially in Nemesis, uh, Surging Stream, plus one damage to range one and range two attack actions made by uninspired friendly fighters. This effect persists until the end of the round or an uninspired friendly fighter makes one or more attack actions. Um, and I just want to bring that up because that's, you know, some in-house plus one damage. Yeah, it's never bad. Yeah. Uh, they only get one crack at it. Uh, it's not a 
uh, it's not looking for a successful, you know, attack coming from an uninspired friendly fighter, which I reckon kind of pushes the power level even further, you know, on this. So I'm not surprised to not see it looking for a successful attack here that you are only getting the one crack at it. But when you're looking for uninspired friendly fighters, you know, um, you want this in round one, um, ideally maybe round two, round three, you, d- you don't want to see this card, uh, because if you go first, you don't even get a power step, um, to be able to play this. So yeah, like there, th- there's going to be some push and pull when you're, when you're building and when you're playing on these uninspired, uh, and inspired windows. And, and I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. I think that's a, a fun thing for them to explore. Uh, and then you're just going to have to, you know, decide which, which of those cards really works for you. Yeah. Um, definitely agree. If you're in rivals, especially you will be super happy to have this. If you're in nemesis, you probably still want it because like you said, it's extra damage. Like you just might need more. Um, and damage is definitely not very available in the, uh, universal, rivals decks that you can pair with so totally agree um i'm i'm not taking this in champ almost guaranteed but um yeah me, me <laughs> yeah you're, you're looking at it definitely very hard in nemesis and in rivals of course you'll just be glad to have it um i think i think that's all of the like synergistic cards for our, the base strategy i i'm pretty darn happy with most of their gambits i don't think we need to go into the remainders just because like at that point we're starting to turn this into a let's talk about every card they have but um but yeah i i I encourage folks go check out all their cards um since unfortunately it does sound like it's going to be a little while till we can have these in hand and uh see if there's other synergies that you think maybe we missed but i think that the power cards we highlighted, they they highlight the objectives well. And then when you start to see those things work in tandem, it's like, yes, I'm on the right track. This is going to work. Agree. And as we dive into upgrades here, uh, you're going to see a lot of ways to increase your survivability. So on our way out of Gambits, uh, there there's one last one I want to highlight because it does speak to survivability. And we're, we're going to be diving heavily into that. Sure. And that's Creeping Mist. And this is an echo to Soul Raid. Yeah. Soul Raid has a card called Cloud of Midnight that is, uh, essentially allows you to not be chosen by gambits, dealt damage, or pushed. Uh, if I'm recollecting correctly, that's the full of it mm-hmm. for an activation. And Creeping Mist here, uh, reaction. Play this after a friendly fighter's attack action that takes an enemy fighter out of action. That friendly fighter cannot be the target of attack actions or chosen as the target for a gambit until the start of your next activation step. Um, so if you can get a kill uh, under your belt uh, and you're in a risky position and you have Creepy Mist in hand, I can guarantee uh, no counterattack against you for a full uh, activation and two power steps. Yeah, um, which is certainly good. I I worry about this sitting in hand, especially against like elite warbands or if your dice are just cold and you're just like, man... I wish I had something that was doing something like really powerful effect when you get to use it, but maybe you don't even really care to protect the fighter that you sent in. Um, you know, maybe they're not the highest priority target. And so I like the card, but I'm after seeing the warband played more and after thinking about their strategies 
some more. I'm, I'm actually lower on the card than I initially was when we first read the cards. You know what? I, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> it has sat in my hand across rounds yeah. in too many games already. Yeah. And I keep wondering, I'm like, do I like this card in, like, in theory or in application? Yeah. And more testing on my side for, for sure. sure. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, maybe if these guys were more aggressive, this would come up more frequently. But if they're more aggressive, you'll have fewer, like, in theory, you'll have fewer opportunities to use it too because you'll, unless you started with it in your opening hand or something, you're probably going to end up in a situation where your fighters are either already so wounded or, or even just dead that you now don't have good application for this. So... Um, it's a weird card, just like Cloud of Midnight's a weird card, but Cloud of Midnight is, I understand why they scaled it back. Cloud of Midnight is really annoying and really strong and, uh, trying to make sure that yeah. they didn't just immediately reprint that for these guys, I think was a good choice, but I, I do wonder if it'll still make the cut. I agree. Yeah. And Cloud of Midnight um, really synergizes with an invading aggro game plan, yes. right? So to see see even you know a rendition of it here, that could lead you to think closer to like, oh, I'm going to be you know more aggro, more invading. And yes, this is going to be a tool for when you go down that route. But I think they're going to excel when they're not exploring that route. Yeah. All right. On to the upgrades. We've got, uh, as you mentioned. There's, there's a number of these that are already leaning into survivability. But I think we just see a number of generally good things. Uh, where would you like to start? Yeah, so on the topic of survivability, I'll dive in. Uh, we have a staple, uh, a plus one wounds in the form of Soul Siphon Mantle. This can only be given to Thralls. Um, so you can't take a four wound uh, Sirenai or Saphonir up to five, but you can bring the thralls up to four. And I think in Nemesis particularly, that is extremely meaningful because that gets you outside of that one shot range where either, you know, a fighter with uh, two damage profile and a little boost, you know, is coming at you or um, one of the, you know, key three damage dealers, you know, is coming at you to take you down. Um, Soul Siphon will, will keep you in the game much longer. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I think even potentially in champs, you you like this. Um, survivability, I think, is going to be a, a sore spot for this warband in champs because of all the different uh, sources of damage that exist. Um, and so having an extra infection, even if it's restricted, uh, great uh, toughness is Agreed. just like, yep, let's, let's get it in there. Sometimes in champs, I tend to lean more into my strengths than shoring up my weaknesses. And uh, sometimes I need to find the balancing act there. <laughs> so sometimes I'll be mad enough to, to leave this at home to really just <laughs> go glass cannon. Yeah. But I, I think this is a good pick in general. Yeah. Um, one that I think sort of synergizes well again um, from what we we're trying to accomplish in our strategy is this card called Channeled Torment. Um, so it's a little bit weird, but I do think that you can make it work. It is restricted to Ideneth. It says you, you get two separate reactions. One is after this fighter's activation, stagger an adjacent enemy fighter. 
And the other is after this fighter is dealt damage, stagger an adjacent enemy fighter. Um, so we know we already care about stagger. If you absolutely have to have it, you can just charge a fighter out there and put stagger down. Um, key to note, it is after the activation, so you won't be able to get this as like part of your charge. Um, it'll be after the attack is resolved that you would be able to put it down. So something to keep in mind. But if you're like, I just really want to score mind erosion, you know, and it's like, I have a 50-50 attack that won't kill the fighter, meaning it won't award any glory, or I could just move and get stagger and then score a glory. Sometimes that's the more efficient play. Um, and then probably where it's going to come up more is the second reaction where somebody else comes to you. They are not using ranged fighters. They don't kill you in one hit and you then get to put the stagger out and this one is especially useful because it is after this fighter is dealt damage not after an activation or after an attack so it could be off of a ping it could be off of an attack during the middle of the attack and so it's it's much harder to deny that uh, additional stagger token so um, when we care about having stagger you like seeing that kind of window where it's going to be hard to stop. So, although I agree that this is a stagger tool that synergizes with, well, um, your your stagger goals, uh, I actually don't like this card. Yeah, you don't like it. <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, and so I actually have the deck sprawled out in front of me. And I was like, what card is that? Because it was the first card I, I removed and, and moved off to the side. And the reason this card is like immediately in my do not include pile is because if you're not using it specifically to like set yourself up going into end phase, then uh, that means if you're taking mode one, where you're after your activation staggering an adjacent enemy fighter, majority of that time, you are offering your opponent a supportive position against your fighter in future activations. And I don't, I don't want to give them that help. I want to lean into my my range two and you know push away. So I don't want to offer them that support. I don't want to offer them maybe uh, an attack into me. I don't think anybody, hopefully, uh, is using this to plant themselves right next to somebody that's going to be able to attack them back um, for free. But uh, then after this fighter is dealt damage is a great window. I like that window because it's before the out of action check. And I remember thinking like, that's the secret sauce in this card. However, you're staggering an adjacent enemy fighter. So if they have any range two or range three, they can push you or like, you know, keep you at arm's length and, and keep this from going off. So, uh, you know, the, in the first mode, it's in your control, but you're putting yourself in a risky spot. And then in the second mode, it's completely up to your opponent. Um, it's in it's in their control if they want to to give it to you. So it's it's not for me. Okay, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I think that's fair. Um, obviously, there's going to be differences in opinion on how warbands work. I personally, when I see that I have objectives that I'm chasing that have conditions that are not things that just generically happen in the course of a game i like to have at least three sources of that thing in my power deck or as some other action that i can take with a fighter that will guarantee that it it can happen so 
when I'm looking at this for like Nemesis and I'm thinking, how am I getting three stagger tokens out? It's not like super powerful, but it allows me to guarantee that I have stagger token access. And that's the reasoning for why I like it. Maybe, I mean, I definitely don't take this in champs. I think you can do better than that. Um, and I think in champs and potentially even in Nemesis, and, and this is something of a like, it's, it's, I don't think it's a bad thing about the game. And I don't really want to get into a philosophical discussion, but I'll just say quickly that like, there is a world in which all your upgrades are just stat modifiers. That's it. I take less damage. I increase health. I am more accurate. And that's what you do in all your upgrades. And it's boring, but it's efficient. And maybe that's just the best way for the game to be. But I do kind of like having upgrades that do strange or different things. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you there. And it's more interest, but it also opens like if if all of my upgrades are just stat stat blocks, right, yeah. then I'm not injecting like any form of like skill expression into what I can then uh, do with those. Right. I'm, I'm living and dying, dying by my stats. But if I'm adding abilities, reactions, um, opening up what this fighter has to offer, then um, not only am I increasing my options, but I'm increasing how much my opponent has to think about what my options can do for me. Absolutely. And I, I suppose it's, it's worth just quickly mentioning <laughs> I, if you're looking just to be like, okay, which, which of the remainder of these synergize well with the objective strategy, I'd say almost none of them do. Um, <laughs> most of them there are there to sort of shore up some of the weaknesses of the warband. I feel like, uh, to your point, there's a lot of survivability things, which is a problem that this warband has, like they are fairly squishy. So it's like, Hey, take extra wounds, take defensive rerolls, take damage reduction because it's going to help with just making it harder for the warband to fall down. Um, yep, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, to that point, we've got uh, Gifts of the Deaths, which is that defensive reroll he spoke to. You can reroll one dice and this fighter's defense rolls restricted to Um You like this. I think you take this um, in almost every one of their builds because uh, at only one dice... If you you're you're very often going to need that crit to save you, like because if two dice are coming in that uh, contain successes, yeah. you know, out of how many how many were thrown, you know, a crit's the only thing that's going to get you there. So having a reroll is what is is what you need. Yeah. Um, you know, extra chances at that crit crit roll there uh, in gifts of the depths. Yeah, I like thinking about a defensive reroll with a single d- dice fighter as though you have an ex like a half of an extra defense dice. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair way to think of it. Um, and then uh, Void Chill kind of rounds out what they have for um, defensive upgrades here with minus one dice to a minimum of one from adjacent enemy fighters' attack actions that targets this fighter. Which, I, I, I like this, I struggle with this. Um, so Soul Raid actually has, uh, this is another Soul Raid Echo here, they have this same card, and it is called... Uh, I think there's actually a slight difference, um, but the armor of, hmm, uh, we'll say Synthai, but I think I'm a little bit <laughs> Anyways, yeah. the, one of those elvish words. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about this is this promotes 
being hugged. You know, whether that's you've decided I'm going to put myself against them so that when they attack me, I'm creating that minus one dice or um, they have a range one attacker that's bringing it to you. So overall, I really like this card. I think that there are a lot of fighters in the meta right now that are excelling at that range two and further. Yeah. But as we step into the Death Gorge and we're putting up ice columns everywhere, uh, we're changing like we're changing the math there for those fighters like they're they're sometimes going to be blocked out of that range two range three position and they might have to get adjacent to you so uh i think the value of something like void chill goes up in death gorge and i i I think overall that um you know if they're throwing less dice at you and you can make that happen you're you're happy and to point back to channel torment for a second if you can combo these together, it's like not only am I getting it close to you right now to make your attack worse, then after my activation, I'm going to stagger you. So there you yeah. go. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, when we're living in magical Christmas land, it's like, ooh, perfect. Uh, probably won't really come up, but certainly fun to think about. I do think that it's important to always be thinking about block taxes when you're evaluating cards now. We say they'll be more prevalent how much is really hard to say on paper they'll be around but i'll say in our games we completely forgot about being able to place them so um i think they'll be like yeah, our initial games there, they'll yeah. be like a, a, a an on-ramp to remembering to plunder and use some of this effect and then i think once it clicks and people are like this is part of my game plan i'm planning to do this people will be using it frequently enough that it it will matter how much who knows? But I think it'll be something to always be thinking about. Agree. Um, one upgrade that speaks to me regarding like just positional shenanigans, and this this can actually help lean into the hold. I think it's I think it's their only upgrade that really can do this for you. And it's not it's not there on first blush. I guess the, so. They have one that offers you uh, an a guard token after a fighter's activation. That one's called incredible dexterity and that's done in a a reaction. It's fine. (laughs) So that can help. If you're bringing that, you probably really want that on uh, a Saphenir because after he activates, you want to make him so hard to uh, hit so that anytime somebody does, you're just blinking around and staggering. Um, But uh, the card I was actually going to reference is great wake, which is reaction after the spider's move action, push a friendly fighter within three hexes one hex towards the spider um i like this one quite a bit i have always been a fan of the upgrades that allow me to push one after my activation and although this is this is a unique take here you're not moving the fighter that just took the activation you're moving another fighter you know pushing them one closer uh to you after you've done a move action and where that helps, I think, the most is in that hold game plan. Yep. So you can hit somebody off an objective. And then if you don't have a push available to you in uh, your gambits, you can then use Great Wake on another fighter to uh, dash forward and pull that f- previous fighter that did the work to get that person off that objective, you know, onto the objective for you. Um, th- th- there's a ton uh, of application anytime you're able to push fighters around and you know, here it's within three hexes. Uh, so the bubble of influence here is uh, quite grand. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the directional limitation, the range limitation does mean that this is not just like 
free repositioning, but it's about as close as you can expect to have. So if if you are a player who can plan ahead, I think Great Wake is going to do a lot of work for you. Um, there's lots of applications for this. Like, yes, getting onto objectives certainly I think is the first thing that came to my mind, but there should be lots of ways to have this set up future activations and power cards. So I definitely like this one. I think it, it synergizes really well. I think for me, the last one that I like is like a synergy piece. And it's it's sort of a synergy adjacent, I guess, piece is the Soul Scry Lantern. And I don't know that you always take this. Um, it's an Idanath restricted upgrade. And it says, if this fighter is on an objective token, at the end of the third action phase, gain one glory point. So this is a key, effectively. We've seen all the key upgrades for a number of different printings throughout the history of this game. Um, they're better than they read on paper. And this one in particular has fairly l limited restriction. So you, you can be on any objective and the fighter technically doesn't even have to be holding the objective. So if for some reason that your opponent has a way to say this fighter can't hold objectives, you can still score this. And I say score this because these kinds of upgrades are kind of like having an additional hold a uh, single objective in the third end phase for one glory. It's like having an extra objective in your deck without taking up an objective slot. So the where I see this, and I think we can from here probably transition into like some more general strategy talk and like pairings. Uh, is there any other upgrades that you wanted to hit before we do that? I can't not talk about Sirenite upgrades without mentioning Savage Ferocity. Okay, fine. Because... We they have a plus one dice upgrade. It's good. <laughs> Take it. It's so good. Yeah, you know, you, you uh, always bring this. The reason it's so good is simply because uh, it's not limited against scything actions. So you can actually bring this into a scything action with Alithir uh, or any other sources of scything you're bringing in, you scoundrel. Yeah, I mean, this could have had any number of restrictions on it and still have been taken almost automatically. I've just been like, yep, plus one dice. It's good. It's really good. Um, an almost unrestricted plus one dice is like asking for this card to be restricted almost. We'll see how strong the warband ends up being. They might need this to like be relevant, but I think on paper and from what we've seen playing them, they they feel like they'll be good to me. Um, I think it'll take a while for people to get their legs under them, but I think once they do, uh, it's going to feel rough that they get like once this comes out, all of a sudden one of their fighters is just a monster. So yeah, definitely take that one. It's good. There, there's not a lot <laughs> else to say. We've, you know, plus one dice upgrades throughout the history of this game have been good to the point of problematic. They work well in every strategy because you're always going to be making at least some attacks. So, you know, the generic stuff you always take, right? If there was a generic plus one strength, you would, or plus one damage, you would take that in this deck too. But so... The idea I was going to get to. Yeah. So the Soul Scry Lantern. Excellent. In the way that it is sort of uh, strategy adjacent is that I, I imagine a lot of what I'm doing is, you know, you, you've got 
the squid and your two boys up front, or I guess they're not boys. They're not, they're not both male, but whatever. They're soulless, uh, guys hanging out up front. Um, I think you, you sort of, you don't necessarily deploy them super aggressively, but my imagining is that most often you'll sort of have one line with them kind of midline, and then you'll keep Sirenai herself back so that she's safer and so you should unless things go really wrong have sirenite alive towards the end of the game and if your final activation with sirenite has to just be i move on to an objective and i have soul scry lantern that doesn't feel like a bad thing to me yeah i agree uh i think the place that this ends up being awkward is just when you draw it early right because then you have to dedicate it in round one round two and you might not have that fighter in round three but overall i really like this space a key being found here because uh, i i agree with you i think it speaks to their game plan you know if i'm spending a lot of energy staying back i'm not necessarily going to have a need for as many upgrades i don't think like i i almost feel uh <laughs> I, I feel weird saying that because like upgrades are always good right yeah but upgrade upgrades are often good when you're interacting so if you're taking a lot of time trying to stay back and you know get ready then i think you might actually have room for this in your upgrade deck because you might really only need those nine upgrades and this can be your 10th and offer you a way to flex into a little more glory yeah and i think this is definitely something you are probably reaching for more in Nemesis than you are in Championship, but uh, I think you at least consider it in both. And being fully available to all Ideneth fighters, I think, is is really good. Not having it restricted to just the thralls or just your leader. But that is that is sort of a rundown of all of our like key cards. Sort of what are what are all the cards you're looking to build your strategy around support your strategy i i think it would be remiss to not mention that like despite that this is the way that we are sort of seeing that we think they will flow the easiest there are potentially other ways you could play these fight uh warbands one that sort of comes to my mind and feels very weird and probably hard to play but potentially could work is like a very controlling magic build instead of leaning into all the fighters you like double down on siren eye yeah i was thinking about this yeah and yeah so i think i think we can use this sort of as a jumping off point into pairings but it is something to keep in mind that i think this warband could flex into another sort of controlly or magic heavy build but Personally, despite what GW said, I I see if I look at any of the stuff where it's like, man, I'm going to do invading aggro. I just see that plan just falling on its face. Like, what am I going to do if I'm invading aggro into Gore Chosen? Like, it feels awful, right? Yeah. No, I. (laughs) I, I mean, I just think the answer is you're not you're not invading yeah, you just um, don't. At, at least as as your main strat. No, right. Like if you there are going to be times where you realize there is um, a passive horde war ban across the table yeah, from you gotta... and your game plan is going to shift instantly, you know, to FLM. Invade. but what Who said that 
<laughs> but it's, it's not going to be uh, where you start uh, as a strategy. And I, d- I don't think it should be uh, with this war band. That's, uh, that's adapting to the moment uh, and the matchup, not um, what you're kind of carving out as your baseline. Yeah, agreed. So all of that in mind, saying that we think there's sort of this flex hold, but probably on the more patient, passive, potentially controlling side of flex, where do we see their pairings and why? Yeah, I'll kick off here. So I teased earlier uh, that Fearsome Fortress stands out as extremely synergistic to me. And there are a few key reasons for that. One, when somebody tells me that they're playing Fearsome Fortress across the table from me, uh, immediately I consider longboarding that opponent to reduce how many hexes occupy within one of no no man's land, right? Yep. So if your opponent seeks to disrupt you by longboarding you to counter Fearsome Fortress, then they've also created that tighter span of lanes uh, that I was talking about more. Your, your lanes are more dense and it's easier to reach yeah, each and every one and, and you know just laser down a long stretch instead of trying to find these angles. Um, so Fearsome Fortress is, is interesting there alone, but the synergies keep coming with you know your uh, Sephanir being able to teleport to that area and help you score things like Conquered Domain. Yeah. And stockpile could offer you the chance to uh, hold one back in your territory so you can spend like an early activation especially in your earlier rounds where you're trying to hold back if you're lucky on numbering you can have um, some investment in the tokens in the back and then a later activation can be sending sephanir with his flying five movement you know down to the uh, the other objective that you need um but two cards that kind of stand out for me as further synergizing with them is Opportunistic Reprisal. I think they are the number one warband in the game that likes this card. I think most of the time this card is a trap. Here, in this pairing, you take it. Uh, so yeah. this is this is reaction. Play this after an enemy fighter's attack action if that fighter is staggered. Choose one friendly fighter. So any friendly fighter, uh, the chosen fighter makes one attack action that must target that enemy fighter. So obviously, you know, whichever fighter you're picking has to be within range. But very often, um, if you're leaning into Hammer Tide and um, using Sephanir to help be an attractive target that's dealing out stagger through phasing, you're creating you're creating staggered fighters. Uh, it's it's part of part of what you want to do. So there's a strong chance that you're going to be able to capitalize off of opportunistic reprisal and then additionally they have uh, makeshift bombardment so choose one friendly fighter on a feature token and choose one enemy fighter visible to that friendly fighter and within three hexes of that friendly fighter pick one stagger the chosen enemy fighter so there's some stagger support uh, or push the chosen enemy fighter one hex away from the chosen friendly fighter so this is going to help with your stagger game plan and when it's not helping you with your stagger game plan it has the flexibility to help you push fighters away yeah yeah uh i think the synergies here you know don't stop there but those are definitely the ones uh that i kind of wanted to highlight absolutely um i certainly think it has the most synergies and as you said like it keeps going there's more things that work well together in terms of objectives i i 
do think that you are liking a lot of what you see it does force you a little more into the center hold stuff but i think there's room to be able to say i'm not going to try and get onto those right away if my opponent wants to come on to those tokens and try and deny me being on them it gives me opportunities to hit them first um which i think it it sort of gives a nice push pull there where like it's okay and that's almost a trap for my opponent to end up sitting where I can then counterpunch them instead of me moving up and then getting counterpunched. So I like that. And then you have two different weapon options. Um, and as you mentioned, Sephanir can do. have weapons. So giving Sephanir either Mason's Great Hammer or the Star Maw, which the mental image of Sephanir holding a gun is uh, pretty great. But, but having both options, I think is helpful for Sephanir to have those extra uh, avenues for some damage and um agree there's uh, one more end phase actually that I'll, I'll highlight here that i think is a really interesting synergy and it's one i normally stay away from in fearsome fortress offerings it's siege breakers so this is score this in an end phase if there are no enemy fighters in your territory to glory and i think that this is inviting them into your territory. This gives them reason to come into your territory, right? Oh, Where sure. You're, yeah. you're going to be able to play reactionary. Yeah. So like if they don't know this is in your deck and they're scared to kind of enter your web, if you will, then this could score for you in like, a, you know, that first game of a best of three, uh, surprisingly. And that's two glory. But then in the rest of that best of three, they're thinking, I got to, I got to get over yeah. there. I got to get somebody over there to prevent siege breakers. And you're like, yes, please do <laughs> bring somebody over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come stand near my range two fighters so they don't have to charge into enemy territory, please. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, definitely agreed. Not one I had thought about. Um, I certainly like it. So we're, we're high on fearsome fortress, you know, Skylar's on the episode. So who, who would have thunk, um, <laughs> But in, in all seriousness, it does seem like a good choice. Um, I think while I haven't thought through a lot of like how would I score with this pairing, I think the extra movement from Void Curse Thralls feels really good. I think so too. I've been building a deck for this. And, and your fighters, most of them are on one defense dice anyway. And so you don't really mind being on one block. Because either you're already one block or like the whole almost of the first round, Sephanir's one dodge. So Sephanir on one block feels even better. So there's not a lot of downside. Obviously, you don't want to void curse uh, your wizard. That would be bad. <laughs> that hammer tide going away is going to be really rough. Oh, and I guess something that we probably should mention in thinking about Nemesis pairings, also think about your opponents. Siren, I in a matchup against void curse thralls just cannot stand on an objective just don't do it because if they turn off because because there's the the snare uh the reshaping snare card if they just turn her into a void curse like turn one oof yeah real bad mind your footing yep Keep, keep that in mind. But I do think there's a lot of flexibility in the power cards for things you can do with Void Curse Thralls, and I'm sure you could find ways to work around the ob- objectives. Um, honestly, I don't love the objective deck that much for Void Curse Thralls, but 
I think the rest of the deck is so strong that it almost doesn't matter. So I, I think I would, I would at least look at it. And like you said, you've been building a deck for it just to see. So I, I think that's a good one. Any others that you're thinking about? Yeah. So I actually want to, uh, I know you just brought up void crystals, but I, I want to pass the mic back to you and ask you about force of frost. Oh, okay. Is there anything that you think is, uh, particularly good there? I, th- I think, uh, you were talking to, you know, this doubling down on your leader and her being a wizard and working off of that. Yes. Um, I think I think that really exists here and um, has potential. So tell me a little bit more about that on your side. Yeah. So it's definitely a more risky play because uh, you do only have the one wizard and only, you know, not not a huge amount of like natural inclination into magic. But there are plenty of spells that put out block taxes and other things that can disrupt uh, your opponents. So if your plan is to like hang back and make it harder for them to get to you, you can definitely use all your spells to like just be disruptive. Try and play control. Be like, I'm going to put down this block tax. I'm going to make it harder for you to get to me. I'm going to like use things like frozen to the spot to give a move token or make it so that if your fighter moves, they'll take damage. And you just kind of can set things up that way. And I think you you sort of end up leaning even more control than you normally would if you go with Force of Frost. And you're really building around this idea that like, I'm going to use the rest of the Warband to protect Sirenai. And most of what I'm doing really is just sitting back with Sirenai and like hammer tiding and setting up to try and do things like cast extra spells, um, you know, set up block taxes, be in the way, just trying to do that kind of positional scoring. I don't have like a really strong sense of exactly what you would do. I do like the idea of being able to make another one of your fighters a wizard using the Everwinter staff because it doesn't hurt to have that extra wizard. And I think that between the spells for being disruptive in Force of Frost and having your center of attention clone and, you know, your extra move action spell, you could you could have a pretty nice package of like utility spells and having that extra caster could be really important. Agree. And this is the only pairing where the squid can be a wizard. It's true. Squid wizard is uh, something that would be a personal goal, I think. Um, In fact, that gives you that uh, range two weapon, too. It does. It does. And I guess it's worth calling out the Frostworm Cloak is kind of broken. And being able to put Frostworm Cloak on Sephanir seems really nuts. (laughs) Uh, Minus one damage on the squid. Just probably just leave him alone like you're probably not taking him out of action which means he's gonna get to do the squid thing which means he's gonna stagger and teleport and oh boy there i think there's a lot of interesting weird things that you could do with this pairing the objectives are kind of all over the place and like the ones i would normally look to in the deck are bitter storm winter's hunger and cold of the void and i don't Winter's Hunger feels fine. I think you can make that work in like a passive control build. I don't know if I want to lean super heavily into casting four spells with this warband. 
So I would be a little hesitant for bitter storm. And then cold of the void, I think is just always good, but you've got to be able to catch people out with it. Um, at least at first, but you do have a lot of like shenanigans with movement. So maybe you can just make it happen. Yeah. I actually really like cold of the void here because you have that range too. You have great movement stats and then Stephanie, you know, you're only range right. one. Yeah. Teleport. Yep, exactly. So he can just teleport away. So I think cold of the voids are really, um, a really solid pick here. Uh, Void Curse Thralls is a matchup that you, you're not looking forward to when you're running this card because uh, they're reactioned or refashioned reactions, uh, which is the one that allows them to move adjacent to a fighter. Yep. You know, can put this uh, put this out right away. Absolutely. So I, I've been toying around with Force of Frost, uh, actually all three of these that we've discussed, um, and I haven't ventured too far outside of it. You kind of do experiments in your mind where you're like, let me think about what I know about that deck. Um, you know, will that pair here? And these are these are really the three that stood out to me. I'm sure there are synergies elsewhere uh, that I'm not thinking through. But as, as I've been toying around with uh, Force of Frost, uh, Stranglehold uh, is a surge for two glory. Score this immediately after an opponent's power step. If your warband holds each objective within two hexes of no one's territory, and what I've been finding with this card, paired with, uh, sorry, paired with the the razors here, is that Sephir can do a lot of work towards this card. So yeah. with it in hand, uh, what I what I found myself doing is like I ran into. Uh, enemy territory onto an objective flipped it right it's just like and delve this and then i got attacked and then i um i had a defensive upgrade on him actually i think it was frostworm cloak uh, so i didn't take much damage for this and i teleported away to another hex that you know that was a feature token within this requirement but now the only feature token that is an objection sure, yeah uh, within this requirement yeah so um yeah <laughs> uh you, you have some shenanigans to, to help you score Stranglehold here that I think are totally worth exploring. Yeah, it it's some fun stuff. I totally agree. I think it, it is one that is worth exploring and important to note as we transition to talking about championship, Force of Frost does not have a plot card. <laughs> does not. No, I think I think it would be very worthwhile dipping into this when you're when you're playing Sirenize Razors and you're playing Championship and you don't you're not limited to this pairing, I, I think you're dipping into it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, w- one gambit from here that I want to highlight because I think it's particularly interesting. It's interesting on its own. Uh, it's time freeze, um, but there's some extra interest when it's played with Sirenize Razors. So I'm going to run down time freeze real quick. This is play this only in your power step. Choose two friendly fighters. Give each chosen fighter one ice counter and one guard token. In your next activation step, you must take the pass action. In your following activation step, uh, in the same phase, you can take two activations. In each of those activations, you must activate a different chosen fighter or pass. And I like this for two reasons here. Um, First off, I have not cracked the code on this this card. I, (laughs) uh, there's a big cost here uh the implicit cost here is you're allowing your opponent to have two activations um, before you then take two activations so they're going to get first crack at two two activations and they're not limited on uh which fighters they activate they can activate the same fighter if they if they so choose and have the ability to do so Uh, but we were talking about holding back 
right? So this allows you to say, hey, I want to hang back a bit. Why don't you take two activations before I start, right? right. So yeah. So this this kind of leans and synergizes into, into your hold back and react play. But what this also does is this could allow you to take an additional inspired activation that you would not normally have access to. And that is a uniquely oh, Siren Eye Razor yeah. thing. Oh, that's a good point. And I, I haven't done that yet, but I'm excited to pull it off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is going going from what would normally be six activations inspired to seven is not insignificant. Yeah, it's something to think about. I hadn't I hadn't considered that. I like it though. Cool. So we've we've definitely dove deep uh both into the warband and into nemesis i think we don't really have a lot of play experience with championship yet i think that's worth mentioning but i do want to just talk briefly about what we think we would be doing differently in championship before we close this episode out uh so any any final thoughts on nemesis before we transition on nemesis no no i think i think we are covered there with what we set out to cover yeah I I would agree. And so with championship, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Force of Frost doesn't have a uh, plot card. So I think you're you're cherry picking out of this deck for sure. Um, How much that will probably depend on what kind of strategy you landed on. I do think that the passive hold control stuff becomes easier in championship because you also get access to seismic shock which gives you access to claim the prize which anybody who hasn't run into that card yet uh <laughs> good on you for not having to deal with that but uh that one's really good and is usually a hold too and for a warband that's pretty happy to just sit back in their own territory and try to deny their opponent i really like the idea of just hold two in your territory for three glory um i do as well so you know there's there's other utility things that you can pick up there in seismic shock as well um the i think the the big question then becomes in championship what which plot card deck do you want and which, which thing is giving you the most value in championship and sort of like what is it that you're still needing in terms of strategy do you need more power cards because i think in that case i'm probably leaning more towards void curse thralls do i need better objectives in that case i think i'm probably leaning towards fearsome fortress it's a it's an interesting division point at least in my mind because like i think you could realistically build a championship deck with either one and you'd use a lot of the same pieces for both but the ultimate like play style from where that split is i think makes them play very differently um and i don't know what the right answer is yeah i I think there there are a few right answers in the ideas of like what you don't take so like you're probably not taking tooth and claw as your um plot card here because a lot of what that has to offer looks for range one and your range two so you're likely not grabbing tooth and claw um, you're likely not grabbing breakneck slaughter. And the reason for that is if you ever have momentum that you need to manage with impetus, then there, if I was playing against uh, a Sirenized Razor player who brought breakneck slaughter and I was handling this reaction, 
I would simply push that fighter into my fighter. Uh, so what is accomplished there is then um, uh, they are staggered. Yeah. <laughs> and like I'm on one defense dice. I do not want to give my opponent even better odds at, at taking me down. So breakneck slaughter on its own is like has amazing aggro objectives, but I don't think you're playing them aggro. And um, then yeah, again, in power, uh, you, you kind of want to stay away from momentum with this war band. So those are like some plot cards I know I'm not taking, Yep. but I think you did a really good breakdown on why you'd be reaching for void curse or, or fearsome fortress. And, and you did so succinctly in a few words. Sure. I guess anything else that you can think of for championship that might be different from what we've discussed in Nemesis already, that it would be like, hey, this is going to be a cool thing that you get to add in championship that you wouldn't see otherwise, or maybe even like a change up in strategy that you otherwise wouldn't see. I think uh, championship is ultimately going to allow them to focus up into a single game plan and weed out the, the cards that are going to pull you out of safety uh, or not sync as well with that game plan. So where that puts you, I think as a Siren Eye Razors player, is you're either doubling down super hard on uh, Siren Eye as your wizard and potentially bringing in a backup wizard and then focusing on that and focusing on staying back and doing as much as you can between Hammer Tide and Spells. That's going to be one play style. Uh, I think another play style is going to be pushing them further back into their territory on those two objectives uh, and, you know, path to victory offering them. They only need to get one. They need to take one fighter out of action and they could accomplish that just with hammer tide, you know, yeah. and then making sure that they can position onto those objectives. So that that's where I would live. That's, that's what I want to explore in championship is a really, you know, passive hold, hold back, hold to, uh, and counterpunch, you know, play really cagey like, which these are things that we were exploring as part of their game plan identity and as what you can do with them in Nemesis, but you can really just focus it up yeah. uh, in championship. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's a mad scientist out there that is going to build a deck that just focuses on using Hammer Tide 12 times. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Uh, with like 10 pushes and movement tricks it's, it's not even an inefficient strategy right like if you can make it happen where you get to use hammer tide 12 times that's 12 damage like that's a lot of fighters dead without having to roll a single die so add some ping cards in there and all of a sudden it's like wow how much damage access do you have without rolling dice and uh i do like that i do think there's at least the potential, maybe not right now with the universal pool, but I do think that if there were to ever be a warband to do like a pure, I'm going to score mainly off of stagger tokens, like this kind of feels like a warband that could do it as long as we got the objective support for it. Um, agree. So I would, I would definitely at least look at the options for doing something like that before I decided it's impossible my guess is it's impossible, but I certainly like it as an idea. So it's also something I'll, I'll be, well, I probably won't play these guys right away if at all, but I, I will be thinking about it uh, in the event that somebody else chooses to play it. I'll make sure they stay front of mind for you. All right. Sounds good. I, I imagined you would. Uh, 
any final thoughts? I think I think we've done a good job of covering the set out goals of explaining what the warband is, what they do well, and what cards support that strategy, and then uh, what we would pair with them. So unless there's anything else that you think needs mentioning, uh, I think we can close it out here. I think in closing, one thing I'll say is if you find yourself across the table from Sirenize Razors and you're looking to make an attack against Sephanir, I would just think twice about that attack and what it can do for your opponent. Keep that phase ink in mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, man, you can't underestimate how many opportunities and how many options there are when you're going to have a teleporting squid after you attack him. <laughs> yeah. I think there's going to be uh, a lot of time where the Razors player is happy that Sephanir was the target chosen. Yeah, I agree. Which also makes me think they'll probably position Sephanir forward quite a bit. So unless you have a good way to take him down quickly, maybe maybe don't fall into the trap of making small attacks against him. Agree. All right. Well, I've had a blast covering Sirenize Razor with, with you, Phil. Any, any final thoughts on your side? No, I think we can close it out here. All right, let's do it. All right. As always, uh, you know, we, we've espoused our thoughts now for a couple hours. But if you have any thoughts about the Warband, if there's any takes that you think are egregious, uh, <laughs> or if there's things you think we missed, let us know about them. The easiest way to get a hold of us is in our discord and we'd love to have you there there's people chatting about all things underworlds kind of all the time uh if you're not a discord person you can also reach us at what hexcast on the platform formerly known as twitter and uh what the hexcast at gmail.com if you'd like to check out any of our previous episodes or any of the other content from the Mortal Realms uh, podcast group, you can head on over to themortalrealms.com. We have all the shows up there and all of our links to our shows and the blog posts that we have. Coming up next, this is pretty much wrapping up the uh, end of our new release content. We haven't quite done anything for specifically force of frost or specifically breakneck slaughter yet tbd on what exactly we're going to do for those but we are likely going to have something involving those maybe we'll have a bat rep with some of these new warbands but stay tuned there will be something not entirely sure what yet and uh as we come closer to this new release we know there's going to be a rotation happening some old universal cards will be leaving us the very least we expect harrow deep to be going so if you uh have any cards from harrow deep that you are going to be particularly glad to have gone or if you are going to really miss uh let us know we're we are likely going to have some sort of discussion at some point once we get whatever docs they decide to publish to show us what the rotation actually is going to look like uh sort of a discussion of what does that mean? What does the landscape look like now that that rotation has happened? All right. That brings us to our the infamous Flavatext quiz. Uh, Skylar, are you ready for a Flavatext quiz? Absolutely. All right. We have a card here. And uh, this, this is one you really like. So hopefully you can get it. That's your clue. If it catches you, it's over. 
It's momentary vortex. It sure is. It's momentary vortex. He got it first try. Didn't even have to hesitate. Just knew it. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Right off the top. <laughs> I, I figured you might get it, but it, it's a good one. And uh, I know it's one you liked. All right. And then uh, your recommended listening for this episode. A much less heady choice than probably what Davey would pick for you. But uh, I figured, you know, we're mermaid adjacent. Let's go for some death clock. Some some mermaider some some mermaid murder uh that'll do it for us <laughs> for what the heck's i've been phil and i've been skyler Uh, there are some spells. Uh, I'm just double checking.